You're listening to Comedy Central. If you were trapped, if you got lost on a hike, well, let me ask a white person this question. So, if you, if you got lost, no, I mean, like, these are questions, come on, there's black people, what are we, when was the last time you had a hiking conversation? Every time I see, like, stories about, like, someone lost in the woods, man, lost hiking, I'm like, ah, I know who this was, there's no, do you know what I mean? There's never been a situation where I'm like, oh, shit, is it, is it, my, no, no. I know which friends I would even call if that happened. Because, I mean, let's be honest. So if you, if you were ever trapped on, like, a hike, if you went on a hike and then you got lost, um, what, what, what would you probably do? You'd probably call someone or something, right? So this is one of my favorite stories. This, there's a guy who was hiking and got lost in the woods for, like, 24 hours and then had to be rescued. And then it turns out when they rescued him, they had been calling him. The rescuers had been calling him. And he didn't answer the phone because it was an unknown caller. And now there were like two major things that I was thinking of here is like, number one, like this is the time when even a telemarketer is, is gonna help you in your life. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Who are you or how much debt do you have that like your phone is ringing and you're like, please, somebody, somebody, Who? No. No. Also, like, what, what number are you waiting for when you're trying to get rescued? Doesn't say rescuer. I don't know. Like, you haven't saved rescuer in your phone. What kind of an idiot? Like, why wouldn't you answer the phone? You know? And then secondly, like, do we not, the meaning of words, do that, like, if a person is, like, stranded, I don't think that means you have a phone that can receive calls. You can't be stranded if you have a phone that can receive calls. You're just, you're just taking some time out. Because if your phone can ring, if you have battery, to me, stranded means nothing. Nothing is working. Do you know what I'm saying? If your phone can ring, you're not stranded. Like, if you phone me and you're like, help me, I'm like, you, you're fine. I'll see you later. <laughs> I only worry when the phone doesn't ring anymore and you can't answer. Then I'll stress. Hello? This is Trevor. Oh, no! Then I, then I stress. Otherwise, my friends know. Like, you know? Also, if you're hiking, ah, my man. Isn't that what you were trying to do? Why else would you go off where we did not make roads and paved things? I mean, this is, you, you've asked for it to a certain degree. You've said, I wish to involve a walk in my life that could end with me not being found. That's what a hike is, fundamentally. It's people saying, I wish to go somewhere and maybe not be found ever again. I'm not saying something bad should happen to you. I'm just saying that is what you've chosen to do. Because there are many walks where you can't, like if I'm walking in New York, I'm on 50th Street, then I'm like, ah, oh, I'm lost. Oh, 49th Street, I know where I am. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why we wrote, the, that's literally why we wrote the streets. Because at some point someone was like, I don't know where I am. Then they're like, let's, let's give them names. Let's give them names. And then someone was like, I'm tired of the names. I want to go where the streets have no names. <laughs> well, then you sort of get what you asked for. Yeah, that's the joys of hiking. Coming to you from the heart of Times Square, the most important place on earth. It's The Daily Show, Ears Edition. Tonight, Facebook lights that you're angry. The real reason cops pulled you over. And Cameron Hall. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Daily Show. I'm Trevor Noah, and joining me today is my good man, Roy Wood Jr. What's going on, Roy? Hey, hey, what's, what's up, man? How you doing, my dude? It's good to see you, man. Nice, good, to, good nice to, to see you here. You know, ready yeah, for the yeah, show? Yeah. We're going to do some headlines together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, 
social media and promoting my hour special, Imperfect Messenger, Friday, October 29th on Comedy Central at 10.30 after an all-new episode of The God's Honest Truth with Charlemagne Leonard McKelvey, The God. Did you just promote your new stand-up special and then Charlemagne's show in this show. Well, they need to know when I come on. I come on after Charlemagne, so it's important I yeah, say but Charlemagne. It's weird because we're about to do the headlines. Okay, fine. You can do the headlines. I said I would be here with you. Yeah, but you, that, I assumed that meant we were doing it together. I didn't think you would just be I here with me. I will check in from time to time with you when I have an opportunity. But man, see, you messing up my algorithm. Oh, either way, I'm happy to have you here, Roy. Even though you're promoting other things. All right, let's kick things off with the story that everyone is talking about. The worst PR week in Facebook history. This week is so bad for Facebook that Mark Zuckerberg was like, Facebook? No, that's, that's not me. That was started by the Winklevi. And by now, you've probably heard about the whistleblower who smuggled a bunch of documents out of Facebook. Well, it turns out that was only the beginning. For the past few weeks, nearly two dozen major media outlets have been secretly working together to mine these documents for new stories. And now, the shit has finally hit the Facebook fan page. The Washington Post reports that starting in 2017, Facebook's algorithm was programmed to put higher value on emojis like the angry face. They gave an angry response five times more value than content that got likes on the newsfeed. The company's own researchers were worried about this, warning that this could open the door to abuse, rage, and polarizing users. Yeah, that's right. Facebook knew it was rewarding shitty posts as long as they generated an emotional response. And I'll be honest, when I first heard about this, I was shocked, because I couldn't believe that Mark Zuckerberg knows what emotions are. I also gotta say this, I mean, this is the worst use of emojis I've ever heard of. Like, emojis shouldn't be used to emotionally manipulate people. They should be used as a fun way to ask someone if they'll water your eggplants. I actually can't believe how pissed off people get when I ask them that, it's really strange. Although, it does make sense, because in regular life, we all put more value on things that produce an emotional response in us. You know, it's why Donald Trump became president, and Jeb Bush works at a Quiznos now. Please clap. You know what's wild about Facebook, man? Is that if you put in the title of your new hour special and a bunch of emojis, it likes. This shit is crazy. Also, Facebook is just Fight Club. You need people over there fighting. That's the whole point of Facebook. And emojis shorten conversations. Let's also acknowledge that. We're not gonna just put this all off on Facebook. We don't even type LOL no more. That's how impatient we are as people. Which is a bad thing. We should be using words. No, we should not be using words. If I wasn't here with you right now, I wouldn't be talking to you. What? We shouldn't be using words. Like, if you want to have a nice, measured, detailed conversation with emotion, take your ass to Etsy. It's Facebook, bruh. Hi, man. I'm trying to read this in the length of a red light at an intersection. I don't have time for nuance. Smiley face, smiley face, gun emoji, smiley face, frown, eggplant. Got it. Green light. You're a dangerous driver. Our next story is about school, the place where you get rid of all your extra apples. Right now, there's a big movement among conservatives to protect children from being exposed to liberal ideas in school. Ideas like racism is bad or gays are not bad. And you know, it's, it's almost like conservatives learned too much about cancel culture and accidentally got really into it. 
You know, like sort of how when you start hate watching a Real Housewives show and then seven seasons later, all of a sudden you're like, I know Ramona and Sonya say they're best friends, but would you talk about your best friend like that behind their back? Come on. Yeah, I, I hate that show. And now this issue has been injected into the Virginia governor's race with a striking new TV ad from Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin. As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. I met with lawmakers. They couldn't believe what I was showing them. Their faces turned bright red with embarrassment. They passed bills requiring schools to notify parents when explicit content was assigned. I was so grateful. But then Governor Terry McAuliffe vetoed it twice. He doesn't think parents should have a say. He said that. He shut us out. Whoa. What, what were these kids reading? Was this first grader reading Fifty Shades of Grey? Was this like a little coloring in book of dick pics? No. It turns out it was actually the Pulitzer Prize winning Toni Morrison novel, Beloved. And also, it wasn't a young kid, it was a high school senior in an AP English class. And I'm sorry, guys, but any parent who thinks their 17-year-old son's school assignment is too explicit, they need to check out his browser history because trust me, he can handle it. And this shows you that the real dangerous ideology in America isn't conservatism or liberalism, it's helicopter parenting. I mean, an AP class is basically a college course. Like, how long is this lady gonna be trying to protect her kid, huh? This poor guy's gonna have his mom bust into his dorm room like, don't make him chug, he'll get an owie in his tum tum. Here's my problem. Banning so-called offensive books is a slippery slope because what's offensive is subjective. Like what might bother one parent might not bother another and vice versa. Like I would never want my kid reading The Great Gatsby. I think it glamorizes friend zoning. That's immoral, you know? Would you read it? I, I, there's too many white people in that book. I'm from Birmingham, they wouldn't let us read that book. We was reading Autobiography of Malcolm X. We was reading um, some Madam C.J. Walker. We, we did read the one book with the, with the elf running around. Uh, Lord of the Rings? No. The, What's the one before that one? Uh, uh, with an elf? Yeah, uh, like, elf. What is the elf Bill, doing? Bilbo. Oh, that's- Bilbo. The Hobbit? Yeah, that's the one. We read that one too. I'm just saying, man, we shouldn't be erasing black history, whether or not it's Toni Morrison novels or it's my new hour special, Imperfect Messenger, premiering Friday on Comedy Central at 10.30 after oh, a new episode gosh. of Charlemagne, the Lenard McElvey Show. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it, Roy. I'll definitely watch it because you've told me many, many times. All right, finally, we're gonna talk about a man who's found one of the most amazing and also disturbing life hacks you'll ever hear about. Because this guy managed to eat for an entire year for barely any money. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, I know where the Chipotle dumpsters are too, but this guy found a way to eat for cheap without getting bit by a raccoon. The California man who found a way to save a lot of money on food, he bought an unlimited year-round pass to Six Flags, the amusement park, uh, which includes a, a parking pass, two meals a day for, check this out, $150. He claims after seven years of eating lunch and dinner at the park every day, he paid down his student loans and bought a house. So $150 a year, you get two meals. Uh -huh. It's like 50 cents a day, basically, uh -huh. okay. to feed yourself. Yeah, that dude fed himself for 50 cents a day. Genius! We should get him to fix all the world's economies before he dies from gout. I mean, right now, the Democrats are struggling to figure out how to pay for healthcare. This guy, 
This guy would solve it. He'd probably just come in and be like, all you gotta do is go to the first day ten at Six Flags and tell them the roller coaster gave you lupus. Boom! Free health care. I mean, if anything, this guy's only mistake was buying a house. My dude, you on a roll. Why buy a house when you can just crash in the fun house instead? The mirrors make the place feel roomier and stretchier. And by the way, how are amusement parks both the cheapest and most expensive places on earth? Like eat for a year, $150. A mouse pad with a picture of you on a roller coaster, $3,000, no in between. But I will say, man, props to this guy for gaming the system. You know, this is the kind of shit you could only get away with at Six Flags. You know, because they're a chilled amusement park. If you tried this at Disney, oh man, Mickey wouldn't mess around. He'd have you hanging by your thumbs in that castle dungeon. Whoa, okay, asshole. You got your free food. Now you gotta get a free beatdown. My, my, my issue with this Six Flags man is that he kept going to the park alone. You know, every trip. What's wrong with that? That's creepy. You can't just keep going to an amusement park by yourself. It, it, it just don't look right. I used to go to Chuck E. Cheese by myself on the road because I like video games and I couldn't figure out how to, like, you know, the hotel TVs, you can't hook up the PlayStation. So you would go to Chuck E. Cheese by yourself? Yes, and then I as had a to grown stop. Man. And I had to stop because people look at you. That's why they built Dave and Busters. Dave and Busters is for grown folks who want to play video games alone without being labeled as something that they aren't. I get it. Have you been on the Six Flags website? I'm on the Six Flags website. They got good food. Like, like you think like an amusement park is just like high school concession stand food. Bro, they got pizza and barbecue, Asian fusion. They got footage of my new hour special. Oh, Jesus. Imperfect Messenger. Premiering Friday at 10.30 on Comedy Central. Oh, no Charlemagne this time. What? No, I already gave him two shout outs. All right. All right, well, it's time to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk about the issue that cops and Black Lives Matter actually agree on. You don't want to miss it. So Friday at 10.30. Only on Comedy Central. Uncensored. Ooh. Uncensored. Welcome back to The Daily Show. Let's talk about the police. The reason every black person immediately knows when their taillight goes out. Very helpful. People are always complaining about getting pulled over by the police. But the surprising truth is that a lot of the time, the police don't want to be pulling you over either. So then, if they don't want to do it, why are they doing it? Well, let's find out in another installment of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. Police give people tickets for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they caught you speeding, or maybe you ran a stop sign, or maybe they're lonely and they just want someone to pull their gun on. But it turns out there's another reason that people keep getting pulled over by the cops. And it's a dirty little secret called the quota system. A lot of police stops happen every year, 20 million of them, and many of those stops, millions of those stops, have nothing to do with traffic safety. It's being called a quota culture. Officers are being pressured to give traffic tickets, forced to meet certain monetary requirements. Ticket quotas are illegal in several states, including New York, Illinois, California, and Florida. But even former law enforcement officials will tell you they still exist. Commanders asking troopers to write a minimum of 60 traffic violations a month. 
On multiple documents, it says this is not a quota. It's morning rush hour and you are watching a Chicago police officer driving the wrong way down busy streets, driving in the direct path of oncoming motorists, even with no emergency lights and cutting people off without warning. The cop behind the wheel isn't chasing a fleeing suspect. She's trying to beat motorists to their parked cars before 7 a.m. so she can quickly write as many tickets as possible. Wow. Did you see that cop? That was so dangerous. People, other than my Uber Eats driver, nobody should ever drive the wrong way down a street. Because it isn't just dangerous, it's petty as hell. I mean, at least when Vin Diesel drives like this, it's to save his family. This cop is out there like, There's only one thing I'm willing to die for in this world, issuing $30 parking tickets. Now, the quota system is technically illegal in multiple states, including Florida. And you know if Florida says something is illegal, then it's really bad. I mean, that's the only state that lets you order a margarita with meth on the rim. Which is very tasty, by the way. But despite being illegal, quotas are still unofficially a big thing in police departments across the country. So you may be asking, why are police departments so horny for handing out tickets? Well, it turns out it's for the same reason that everything happens in America. Money. Many cities balance their budgets in part based on things that people do wrong. Anywhere between five to seven billion dollars are made every year from known speed traps, arbitrarily low speed limits with heavy traffic enforcement designed to generate ticket revenue. Nearly 100 Georgia cities relying on ticket money to fund at least 10% of their annual revenues. All over Colorado. Towns that cite so many drivers, the cash flow makes up a huge chunk of their budgets. None at 40%. Morrison at 52, Mountain View 53. Washington DC had issued $1 billion in parking tickets and traffic tickets in over a three year period. Rolling down this two mile stretch of Interstate 295 in Hopewell, Virginia, you'll see why it's dubbed the million dollar mile. For years, Hopewell has used this sliver of highway that runs not through, but along the town's border as its personal cash register. Last year, Hopewell collected $1.8 million from speeding tickets. Traffic experts say there's no overwhelming safety issue on that stretch of interstate. Yeah, it turns out speeding tickets are a lot like uploading pictures of your feet to the internet. It brings in a surprisingly large amount of money. And when I learned about this, it really changed how I view reckless driving. Because now, when I see somebody driving 80 in a school zone, I think, wow, man, that person really likes to give back to the community. That's really impressive. And when you consider that some of these towns are making basically their entire budget off of these tickets, it finally gives us a good answer to that first question that cops always ask. Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Yeah, because your town is broke as f <laughs> You guys should try that with the cops. Let me know how it goes. But congrats to these towns. I mean, I guess they found a way to squeeze money out of the people who made the unforgivable mistake of driving. It's not just about safety. It's about making the money. But it turns out the cops responsible for handing out all of these tickets, they aren't celebrating because the truth is they would rather be doing anything else. Most police officers don't want to be handing out tickets all day long. They're saying this is not why we got into policing. We got into policing not so that we could write a certain number of tickets and raise a certain amount of revenue. 
but we got into policing to protect and serve. No trooper or officer's hand should be forced um, to write a certain amount of, of summonses. You wind up with less confidence in your local law enforcement agency. You deteriorate the relationship between your citizens and your police department. State police chief says safety of his citizens is at risk because the city wants him to focus more on issuing more traffic tickets than investigating crimes. The problem is if you're going to write that many tickets, it's going to take your whole day. I'm not here to make money. I'm here to run a police department. That's right. These cops didn't get into policing because they wanted to ticket people. They got into it so that every few months they could dramatically throw their badge and gun onto a chief's desk. Well, if the mayor doesn't think this case is worth pursuing, then I'll solve it myself. I'll find the bastard who stole my leftovers from the office fridge. Yeah, seriously though, there are a lot of police out there who would much rather spend their time actually making their community safer. And they know that ticketing random people every day doesn't actually do that. I mean, Batman would never catch the Joker if people kept turning on the bat signal because someone parked in a handicapped spot. And you might think, well, okay, if the police don't wanna write as many tickets, then they just shouldn't do it. These are the police, right? Don't they do whatever they want? And yes, that's usually the case. But when it comes to these quotas, if individual cops don't play ball, it's their ass that's on the line. The public doesn't often see how quotas are enforced in the background. They're enforced on the backs of police officers. In this email to state troopers in Williamsburg, a supervisor tells his team four to 10 tickets a week is unacceptable. He says the so-called enforcement numbers are pitiful and hinted possible lower valuations. Some Richardson police officers say every week the number of tickets they write is posted for everyone on their shift to see, and there's an average given. If an officer falls below the average number of citations, they suffer the consequences. I was threatened the last week that if I don't get my numbers up, then a series of punishments will happen. If you didn't get the, the number of tickets you wanted, if you didn't get the 100 contacts, you get mandatory overtime, you know, you get written up. A supervisor last year telling his officers that the bottom two performers would drive a pool car, meaning a clunker. This other officer getting his radar gun taken away for not writing enough tickets. That's how hard they pressure the cops. If you don't write enough tickets, they'll even take away your radar gun, which means you have to calculate a car's speed in your head. Yeah. Uh, 150? It goes to show you the quota system isn't just unfair to citizens, it's unfair to the police too. And the worst part is the cops can't even protest this because every time they try, they just beat themselves up out of habits. And here's the really important thing about the quota system is that no one likes it. Everyone, the police don't like it. The police unions don't like it, liberals don't like it, Black Lives Matter doesn't like it, minorities, they all want the system gone. It's one of those rare areas in life where everyone wants the same reform. You know, like, we, like how we all agree that we shouldn't have to sign the credit card machine when we use touchless paying. I mean, it's touchless. Why am I grabbing the same plastic pen that everyone else in the CVS just rubbed with their sweaty hands? The system is broken! And yet, as long as it keeps making money for these cities, the quota system isn't going anywhere unless there's another way for the police to make money. And I think we may have found it. Americans are tired of ticket quotas that get them pulled over and shot. Isn't there a better way for police to make money for our chronically underfunded cities? Introducing Uber Blue, the new rideshare app that takes you to your destination in a police cruiser. Our cruisers have a comfortable back seat. 
and can legally run red lights, stop signs, and elementary school crossings. And with Uber Blue Pool, you can pay less if you share your ride with a hardened criminal being sent to lockup. At Uber Blue, safety is paramount, and we're proud to announce that 92% of our rides do not end with the passenger being savagely beaten by the police. Steel beats taking the bus. What are you waiting for? Download Uber Blue now and use code Blue Rides Matter for 20% off your first trip. Uber Blue, you have the right to remain comfortable. Oh, my ride's here. Wait, I didn't ask for a ride. All right, when we come back, Tamron Hall is on the show to discuss her new novel about which missing girls get covered by the news and which ones don't. So don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is Emmy Award-winning television host, journalist, and author, Tamron Hall. She's here to talk about her brand new book, a crime thriller that shines a light on the lack of media coverage when young black children go missing. Tamron Hall, welcome to The Daily Show. It's great to be here. I love your new home. Well, it's nice, yeah. It's, it's like very a little, lovely. You know, it's just like a little vibe just to get out of the house and then, you know, we see where the world takes us. I should say congratulations on your, it's not new home, but it's like, it feels new because the pandemic just like came in the middle of yeah. you starting a new show. Yeah. And yet, despite all of that, you have just, I mean, you've just been on a rise. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been surreal. I mean, we had three months in our new studio kicking off season one. Right. I ended up in my basement of my home with my son upstairs and my husband and with an iPad trying to do this show. And now we're back in studio, season three, our live audience is back and the vibe is mm -hmm, slowly mm -hmm, returning, mm -hmm. but it's a new world, it's a new TV landscape and we feel it, but we've responded to it, I think in a great way. One of the things about doing a show, especially daily, yeah. is, is you're building an audience, you know, you're building a connection with people and then you, you just had three months, Yeah. next thing it's a pandemic. Was there a part of you that was like, oh no, this could be the thing that just like takes everything off course. Was there a moment you were worried? Not in the sense of my show, because I thought, what were they gonna put there? <laughs> like, what are your options? Good luck with that. So I think- It's the pandemic, people. <laughs> you're gonna go shop for a new talk show? I don't think so. So I wasn't worried about uh, that aspect of it. I was worried about my team, because you're now asking people to juggle their personal lives. Yeah, I had, yeah. at the time, my son Moses was nine months old. Wow. And so you've got your personal life and now someone's asking you to show up for work in something called a Zoom mm -hmm. in your home mm -hmm. while the world stopped. But I think it evened the playing field uh -huh. and our show at that time was able to show something that I had. 30 years of a career as a journalist. Oh, I love that. And so we were able to say, okay, now let's level up. What do we do? And we transitioned to conversations like a woman whose husband had gone into the barber shop mm -hmm. and gotten COVID. And she was the first national figure, really an unknown woman to plead to black Americans, my community, your community to get vaccinated. And she was on our show. And then we started interviewing people. We did COVID around the world, literally on an iPad, where we went to Korea, India, all around the world where people were saying from That's their perspective. So it tapped into my days at MSNBC, right, my days right, as a right. journalist. And I think that gave us a leg up to survive and wake up executives who were uncertain about the show, to be honest with right, you. Right, right, right. I love that you, you seem to seamlessly use your life and your life experience to, um, I think to almost inspire whatever you're going to be doing, you know, so, so obviously from the journalism side, you, you know, you, you're a journalist and then you, you've brought journalism into daytime and I mean, you've won an Emmy, congratulations Thank for doing you. that. I mean, it's, that's an exciting achievement to have and your book is no different. Yeah. Tamron Hall, 
as the Wicked Watch. When they said Tamron Hall had a book, I was like, oh, okay, she's going to be writing about the news uh, and she's going to be talking about this. A and memoir. Right, yeah, it's going to be a yeah. memoir. And I was like, no, she wrote a novel. Yeah. Now, why did you not go with a memoir? Why did you not go with something current affairs driven? Because it wasn't interesting to me. Hmm. You know, I thought about writing a mini memoir of when I first um, got fired from the Today Show or left the Today Show to building this talk show, which mm -hmm. included Harvey Weinstein and all of these other stunning stories right. that I had encountered. And I said, you know, I'm not ready for that. Before all of that drama happened, there was a story, two stories in 1997 when I was a reporter in Dallas and then in Chicago within that year, I'd covered the deaths of two girls, both 11 years old, mm -hmm. one white, one black. When you're a reporter and you go get a picture of someone and they give you, the family says, okay, here's the picture for the news. Oof. And you have this little kid and, and you're studying them and you start talking to friends and you're outside their school or in the case in Chicago, you're in the neighborhood and people are telling you how adorable and how wonderful she is. For me, the kind of person I am, I felt like I knew them. And from 97 until even now, it would play in my mind being in front of that crime scene mm -hmm. and what it was like, and it, they haunted me. And so I, before the pandemic started, it started meeting with publishers and telling them, there's a novel inside. I want to get rid of some of these demons, so to speak, demons within the news media and within the conversation of missing people and how right. they're treated. Right. And publishers really like the idea. And I created this character, Jordan Manning, my alter ego, if you will. She's Michael Jordan and Peyton Manning, which is how I got her name, you know? And I said, okay, how do I take this story in the direction that reveals what it's like to be a reporter to the cover yes. these? What is it like being a black woman in the newsroom when you're one of one or one or two? Mm -hmm. And weaving that all into this story in the landscape of Chicago, in the novel, you take us through a story that, yes, is fictitious, but there's no denying it talks to what's happening today. Yeah. And unfortunately, it coincides with, with a conversation in and around black girls who are going missing, black women who have gone missing, and, and, and people asking the questions about how does the media choose which spotlight to use? You know, and, and, and someone said this to me the other day. They said, oh, so should they not have covered that young girl's story? I'm like, no, it's not about the not. It's about the, it's the why not as well. Right. Why do you think it is that so many black girls and so many black women aren't deemed to be a na nationwide newsworthy story? I think we all know the answer to that. You know, and I think for me, to your point of why can't we cover both, it's almost like police brutality. For a long time, I would tell people, wait a minute, black people aren't against police, we're against police brutality. There right. are black police officers, and you put people in a trick bag when you say, oh, the minute you question police brutality, you don't love police or you don't like police right. and they're in your family and they're in your neighborhood. It's a trick bag that people are put into. So when someone says, wait a minute, are you saying we shouldn't cover that case? That's a trick bag. Mm -hmm. And it's one that has been um, built by the media. And I've been a part of it for 30 years in watching this happen. With that case that you're referring to, Gabby Petito, her poor family now have to stop and say, wait a minute, we want her covered, but we also want Jelani Day right, covered. Right. And then Jelani Day's mother's on the other end begging for a camera to just point her direction to plead for where he is. But who's put them in the middle? And that's the hard question that we as reporters have to admit. Who put them in the middle? We did. Mm. And why? Well, because traditionally news organizations were led by white men. And for so long, these things get passed along. I don't right. think, I've never been in a newsroom where someone said, listen, Tamron, we're gonna put the beautiful white girl 
No one's ever said that, but the actions lead to that. So you don't have to say the words when your actions, and with that recent case, I saw four and five cameras at one location here, one location, you know how much money that costs? Right. And she and her family deserve that because God forbid my child was missing. I want your whole newscast. Right. And so you understand the desire of the parent to want that coverage, but where is the responsibility? And I do know, and you and I both know, journalists of color who are in the newsroom now saying it more, right. but more importantly, are in powerful positions. They think the power is in front of the camera. And I go to schools and J schools and I talk to students. The power is not in front of the camera. That's why we want to be executive producers of mm -hmm, our shows. Mm -hmm. When you are an executive in charge of a newsroom or a news organization and you bring your perspective and your sensibility, that changes the newsroom. And we're seeing that more. But I wrote this book a year and a half ago. I could never have imagined we would be talking about this, but yet clearly I did imagine right. it because it's in the book. Yeah, because it's in the book. It's something that's happening now, and unfortunately, as you said, it's something that has happened to you. It's, it's a really fascinating read, not just because of how it ties into yeah. who you are and what you've done, but just because it's a really fascinating read. So congratulations on your first novel, one of many. <laughs> we'll have you back uh, for the next ones, and congratulations again on a wildly successful uh, daytime show. It means the world to me. Thank you. Tamron's book, As the Wicked Watch, is available right now. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, the Daily Show is launching a new merch collection, and it's inspired by our segment, If You Don't Know, Now You Know. 100% of the Viacom CBS proceeds will be donated to 826 National, the largest youth writing network in the country that sets up underserved students for success with the power of writing. So if you want to support 826 National and look pretty cool doing it, scan the QR code below or head to the link. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if you're short on money, just go to Six Flags and borrow money from that guy. He's loaded. Oh, man, maybe someone should rob him. Uh, no, don't rob him. Don't rob him. But maybe. But don't. But don't. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. And stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 